Um, tonight, uh, you know, uh, just something interesting that happened. Um, last week, Friday, we had um, a bunch of the young families here, and, and Grace asked a question. She said, you know, um, what are some of the things that we can do to draw closer to God? And I don't know, somebody mentioned, like, what about reading the Bible? When you read the Bible, it's one way that you can get closer to God. And um, we had a discussion about that, and then uh, there was an individual there with his, with his kids, and and he, um, he, he's not sure where he's at spiritually. And that's what, what I like about events like that. When you have people that come, they don't really know whether they want to know Christ or not. They don't know really where they stand. And, and he was there in this conversation. And then yesterday, I saw him at the, at the football. And he, and he comes over to me and he, and he says to me, it was for him so intriguing that somebody said in that meeting that you can get closer to God by reading the Bible. Like, and he said to me, can you explain that to me? Now, to the average Christian, this is a simple thing. It was just, it just struck me um, how people have no idea how to come into a relationship with God and what it means to have a relationship with Him. And I said to him, hey, like the more you and me talk to each other, do you think it improves our relationship? And he says, ah, now it makes sense. So when you get into the Word, you're hearing what God has to say, and you get to know Him. Obviously, that's going to improve your relationship with them. Now, just this church, we have at least three opportunities for us to get to know the Word of God. Three opportunities. It's just engagement with the Word of God and one another. One is on a Sunday morning. One is on a Wednesday night, a study that Dave leads for us. And then on Sunday nights, we have a more exegetical discussion of the text. And we're busy with the book of Acts. I want you to know that. These are opportunities, because what a lot of people, so I say to him, so, so, so tell me, um, wh what is your struggle? Why, why don't you want to get to know God? Like in a nice way, I asked him, you know, like, why don't you want to get, he says, because I hate reading. And I've heard that a lot from people. We don't know how to read the Bible. We don't want to. We struggle with it. And I understand that. But at least for us. We have three opportunities in a week for somebody to explain it to us. It's an opportunity to get to know God. So I want to invite you to expand your spiritual life. If you want to know God, use these opportunities. Three hours in a week available to us. Tonight, I'm not going to be saying anything, but we have a guest speaker, a young man. Sorry, I don't know his name. I haven't met him, but he's from Zimbabwe, and he's studying at Boise Bible College, and he's going to share some thoughts with us tonight. If you want to join us in hear somebody else speak um, with a normal American accent. Come tonight at 6 o'clock. This is probably the last lesson in the series. Um, I have um, enjoyed looking at some of these things. It's been on my mind. And I've realized also this week that sometimes I say things, I think I say things that I think everybody understands and I don't think everybody understands it. And so I want to make it a little bit simpler today so it really gets in for us. As I listen to debates and discussions of apologists on university campuses. Now, a, an apologist is a person that defends the Christian faith. It's a person that stands up and says, hey, this is why it's a good idea to believe in God. Some of these apologists, that's what they do. They go to university campuses. They put up a, a microphone and a speaker system. And they, they, they have a talk. And the students are passing by. 
And then the students can come and they can ask a question about God or, or about life or about whatever related to God. Now, many times these guys would have discussions with atheists. And often what I hear is the student comes to the microphone, grabs the microphone, and they usually start their, their question or their, their sentence, their request with this, these four words. Now that we know. So there's a Christian guy who's talking about God. Student comes and he says, okay. Now that we know, for example, that lightning strikes, doesn't come from God's house, moving his furniture around. That it's actually caused by some natural event. Or they would say things like, now that we know that Adam and Eve didn't really exist, that we come, we've, we've come through the process of evolution. We come from fish and then, well, as I said, was it last week or the week before that, we come from um, primordial soup and then into fish and then into monkeys and so So now that we know Adam and Eve didn't really exist, or now that we know that the earth is 4 billion years old, not 6,500 years as the Bible seems to suggest, or now that we know that the Bible contains mythical stories, now that we know the stories in the Bible aren't true, how, do you, how can you still believe in the God of the Bible? Often they'll bring this up. Now that we know. What does this tell you? Well, it tells us that we somehow have become arrogant. That because we have science now, and because we have Darwin, does everybody know who Darwin is? Darwinism. Darwin is the guy who started the, the theory of, of evolution, right? Okay. Now that we have science and we can figure things out, and we know a lot of stuff. We've got knowledge now that trumps what God says in His Word. Or what trumps what the Bible says. So we don't have to believe the Bible anymore because we have knowledge. And we have more knowledge than what the Bible has. The Bible is written by men and it's not written by God. This is the fourth topic that comes to my mind. About us becoming little gods. Well, we know more than the Bible now. We know more, as it were, than God. We know more than the apostles. We know more than Moses. Now, because we have science, we can understand stuff. And you know what's the kicker? The kicker for me is this. Every single time, every single time, something comes from science or archaeology or whatever, to say that we now know more than the Bible, everything falls on its head. And science and archaeology actually proves the Bible is true. And I'm going to share with us one such example today. I can probably pull out a hundred examples. But I'm going to pull out one very important and powerful one today that I feel uh, God has brought across my table. So if you have your Bible with you, I don't have it on the screen because it's a lot of reading. I'd like you to read this with me. And if you don't have your Bible with you, it's okay. Genesis chapter 13. Um, you can just listen and you would know the story pretty well. It's a, it's a lot of reading. Um, sorry, uh, let me just put it there on the screen so you can have it. Genesis chapter 13. And then we're going to go to chapter 18. All right.
Genesis 13, verse 1. And let me, let me just tell you this. The closer we get to the beginning of the Bible, the less people want to believe that it's true. In other words, our oldest writings, especially if you go to Genesis, we call this, um, these early sections of Genesis, we call them the antediluvian period. And um, nobody wants to believe these things actually happened. All right. It's all myth. Genesis 13. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock, in silver and gold. Verse 3, from the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abraham's herders and lots. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot, look, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Abraham is standing on a mountain. I'm going to show you the map in a moment's time. Him and Lot, they're discussing. Okay, dude, we've got to split up. Why don't you choose where you want to go? So Lot looks towards where? The east. And he sees the Jordan Valley, where the Jordan River flows through. And he says, well, yes, that, that looks like a nice and fertile place. You can imagine that it's green. The text says it, it's like, it's like the, the, the Nile uh, Delta. It's like, it's like the, the Garden of the Lord, Eden. It looks fantastic. And Abraham is a wonderful guy. He says, okay, well, you choose the nice place. I'll live you up in the rocks in the mountain. And where does Lot go? He goes down in the valley, the Jordan Valley. And he pitches his tents close to what? A, a town named Sodom. All right, now, that's where he's living. Let's go to chapter 18. Verse 16. There are some men that come visit Abraham up there on the mountain, among the rocks. It's actually God that visits him. Verse 16, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. Now they're on top of the mountain. They're looking down into the valley. They can see Sodom. And Abram walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? Abram will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. 
Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So Sodom is a bad place, ladies and gentlemen. Bad place. God comes down from heaven to see it. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abram remained standing before the Lord. Then Abram approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abram said, now that I've been as bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. 
With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well. I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Thanks for reading that with me. Now, isn't this a crazy story? God burns up a few cities. It seems like primarily because of what? homosexuality quick question how much of homosexuality is going on in our country in the world it's a ridiculous story this wouldn't you say in the mind of the average scientist an average politician this is a horrendous story horrendous now most people would say most, this is just a story in the Bible. It's what they call a myth. You guys heard of that word before, a myth? A myth is a widely held but false belief or idea. Many people might believe in it, but it's actually false. It's actually not true. It's a myth. The two key reasons why modern people would not like the story, despise the story, is number one, they would say because early Genesis stories are mythical tales, they're not true history. So when people walk around, they say, this really happened? It's nonsense, man. It didn't really happen. These are stories that were made up and then carried forward through oral tradition. That's as simple as it is. Or secondly, modern day ideologies claim sodomy is natural. That's really what's... what's this is why people hate the story. Especially today. And the longer the human race goes on, and the more liberal it gets in its morality, the more we're going to hate stories like this. 
Because we don't want to believe it's true. It cannot be true. God doesn't rain fire out of heaven. Number one is a scientific problem. People don't turn into salt pillars. It's nonsense. That's the first problem. The second problem is it contradicts the modern thought. It contradicts the modern ideology, idea that homosexuality is normal. You might wonder why I use the word sodomy there. It's because sodomy, the word sodomy and sodomite are terms that stem directly from the story. That's where it comes from. Homosexual sex has been called sodomy since this event. And it has always referred particularly to sex between men. It's becoming the norm now. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I've, I, you know, I've watched a lot of TV since I was young. And for many years, seeing sodomy on television has not really happened much. But nowadays, it's the whole time. Did anybody see homosexuality on TV this past week? Well, yeah. I, I, don't, I, I stopped watching immediately. I switched it off. But not only is it, is it happening and becoming the norm, it's being celebrated. So now it's, it's being, so that's why we have pride parades, which is really a celebration of this stuff. Okay? So it's become deeply normalized. Now, because this story has been considered mythical or not real, um, nobody has really gone looking for this place. Don't you think that if we, if it's myth, why don't we go find out if it is? Let's go find out if there is a place like, do you think we'll be able to see on earth through archaeology if something like this happened? What do you think? Of course, this is a massive event in the Bible, right? If it's true, prove it. Let's find the place. But here's the problem. Because people already think it's a myth, why would you go try find out whether this city really existed if you don't believe that it's a real story? And so very few people have actually gone to search for a place like this. However, there are a few Christians that find the Bible to be true, and some of them have sort of looked for Sodom uh, in um, the biblical lands. So a few minor guys have gone. Um, for most of the 20th century, those who did do some excavation, because it costs money to do this, right? And if the secular world, they really the guys with the money, if they're not going to go look for this town because they don't believe it exists, who is? And so you've got to have these poor archaeological guys who's maybe sponsored by a few churches. They go and they find out whether the place exists. For most of the 21st century, they've said that Sodom is down there at the south end of the Dead Sea. They sort of found a town there. Um, they call it Bab Ed Dra. Those of you pregnant and looking for a child name, there we go. Bab Ed Dra. They say that's where they think Sodom was. They found like a, a, a city uh, that, that, was, that was buried in, in dust and ash, and there was big fire, and they assumed that is where Sodom and Gomorrah is. Now, in the early 2000s, a man named Stephen Collins, he goes... And he's, he decided to go to Genesis chapter 13 and just read what the Bible says. And what does it say, ladies and gentlemen? 
it says that Abraham was encamped there between Bethel and Ai. And where did they look? They looked east towards what? The Jordan Valley. That's the Jordan Valley. This cannot be the Jordan Valley because the Jordan River isn't there. So he believed that's that area over there. He believed that's the Jordan Valley spoken of there. And that's where Lot went. Lot went down into the valley. And so Stephen Collins said he started searching the area to find out if there is perhaps a town as is described in the Bible. Like, for example, Sodom. Now that area there they call the Kikar. By the way, in Jerusalem, still even today, a circle, what do you guys call it, a roundabout or a circle on the road is called the Kikar. Okay? And so he went searching over there and he found a tell. Now a tell, those of you who've read archaeology, means tall. It's like you look, you look at the plain, but you see a hump in the middle of the plain. It's like a mountain. And you think that it's a real mountain. Meanwhile, it's, a, it's sort of a man-made mountain. Then you realize there was a city there. Because what did they do? They build a city. And then it's crumbled up and broken down. And then they build on top of that one. A few hundred years goes by. And that one is messed up. And then they build on top of that one. Eventually, it becomes like sort of a man-made sort of mountain. So he came across this area. It's called the Tel El Hamam. And he started excavating with his team. Now, here are my hands. This is all, all the stuff we're going to read through today. You ready? You're not going home today, bud. Right. I printed this last week. This is incredible. This is a scientific journal. You can find this in scientific reports and nature.com. This scientific journal, those of you who don't know what it is, it's a peer-reviewed scientific journal. 19 scholars, scientists, most of them not Christians, studied the excavations they found on that mountain. Or that mound. Tall, tell, whatever you want to call it. And they wrote this document. And those who don't believe in the Bible hated every millimeter of it. And they said, no, it has to be peer-reviewed. Now, what happens when it's peer-reviewed is they get other external scholars and scientists and archaeologists to evaluate the document and to test what they say is true or not. People who don't believe in the story. Okay? They did that three times. They had peer-reviewed three times. They cannot stand up to the content that is in here. When I read this, I was blown away this is young this excavation started in two the year 2003 i think it is this was published i think it was 2018 very new if you want to read this i can give it to you i'm going to give you scientific evidence and, and and the reason why you know sometimes in christian circles when we talk about these things christians and especially preachers try to inflate the evidence i don't want to inflate the evidence because i do believe in the bible I want to give the facts, because that's what we've got to be as Christians. Give the truth and the facts, right? And the science. Now, listen to this. This is what we found. This is what they discovered. First of all, I'm going to give you just a few things. They found a destruction layer that's 1.5 meters deep. So right through the mound, there's a, what they call a destruction layer. 1.5 meters deep. Right through this whole place. 
what was in the destruction layer, they also call it a, a matrix, pottery pieces, millions of bones, pieces of bones, melted bricks and ash, and multiple others like, like quartz, melted stones, diamondoids in that layer, and salt. We're going to talk about that. A guy who's a, a, an expert in archaeology, I listened to one of his interviews. He went to, when they were still discovering this and trying to figure out what's going on here, he went to a talk at a conference where they were talking about the things that they've discovered. This destruction layer. And he went into the conference room and he heard about this and, he, and they had questions and answer time. And I think it was this Collins guy that was the, the guy giving the talk. And the first thing that he asked was this. The guy who entered the conference, he said, excuse me, did you find any arrowheads in the destruction layer? Why? Because that could explain the destruction, right? War. Right? If there was a war and the people killed the people in the city and burned down the city, there would be arrowheads. That's how, that's how they pick up where the ancient cities were destroyed. Not one arrowhead. Not one arrowhead has been discovered in the destruction layer. It could not have been destroyed by a volcano. How do we know that? Because there would be volcanic rock like we find here up lava, lava lakeside. There's no, none of that. It couldn't have been a tornado. Tornado could destroy buildings, right? But it cannot melt bricks and pottery and leave ash. And so they, these guys have a problem. How was the place destroyed? In the destruction layer, they find, found higher rates of salt content that's not in the layer below or in the layer above. They don't know how to deal with it. The salt content was 4% higher in the destruction layer than either the soil above it or beneath it. There's no way that plants could grow in that salt content. Let's move on. They found melted and bubbled pottery. Mud bricks and roofing clay indicating that there was a temperature there exceeding 2,000 degrees Celsius. We're still going to talk a lot about that. Some pottery, the guy one, in the conference, he says he picks up a piece of pottery. He looks on the inside and it looks just like normal pottery. He turns it over and it's glass on the other side. It takes more than a thousand degrees Celsius to turn pottery into glass. And the technology of those days were not capable of producing that type of temperature. Fire doesn't produce that temperature and neither does lava. The temperature of lava is 1,700 uh, uh, to 1,200 degrees Celsius. So even if a volcano erupted, it wouldn't be able to produce that type of glass. Thirdly, um, the destruction matrix is scattered in a northeast direction. When they started unpacking and digging, they started realizing, but the, the, the destruction matrix is, is small here, and the further you go to the northeast, it becomes wider. So the destruction came from one direction. Occupation ceased for 600 years. After this layer, this destruction layer, for 600 years, there was no civilization that lived there. No city. It's 600 years later that a, a city was built on top of that layer again. Radiocarbon dating accurately claims this event to have taken place in 1650 BC. 
the days of Abraham. Diamondoids were discovered at three times higher rate at the temple destruction layer. They found a temple in the city. And they picked up some diamondoids there that's produced by extremely high heat. And it was three times higher. That for me was interesting. That whatever happened there, the greatest heat hit where the temple in Sodom was. And then lastly, 10 partial human skeletons were found so far out of an estimated city population of 8,000 people. It's a fact. I want you to start picturing the destruction that took place here. They find thousands and thousands of little pieces of bone. How do human bodies get disintegrated into small pieces of bone? What I find intriguing is this image here. This is the most intact skeleton that they found. And apparently they found it behind uh, one of the walls on a, a, a roadway. Do you see what happened there? That is a foot and the bottom leg up to here. They show how the, the walls were very wide at the bottom and then they get narrower as they go up. When that blast came through, totally took out the wall, left the base behind. And so the guys say, this looks like when that blast came through, it totally took off half the body. And only the bottom parts of the legs stayed behind. This is absolute, incredible, horrific, horrific destruction. They found some rib bones human rib bones with nuggets of silver and tin oxide ingrained into the bone. You know what that means? That this heat and destruction that came instantaneously disintegrated people. And tin oxide and silver ingrained within a second, the flesh was melted away and it ingrained in the bone and shattered the bones into pieces. So these guys conclude. Now the scientists are looking at this. This is fact, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not sucking this out of my thumb. Here's the peer-reviewed document. The scientists are saying, how do we explain this? It cannot be a volcano. It's not warfare. It cannot be a tornado. It cannot be an earthquake. It cannot explain everything. And so this is the title of the article. A Tunguska sized airburst destroyed Tol al-Hammam, a middle Bronze Age city in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. That's the title of the article. What does this mean? Sorry, it's not an article. It's a journal. What does this mean? The word Tunguska refers to an event that took place in Siberia in 1908. A meteorite entered the Earth's atmosphere, and it exploded about three to six miles above the Earth. It exploded. And fire and stone particles traveled at a rate of 60,000 miles per hour and hit the Earth, flattened 80 million trees instantaneously. 80 million trees. 
Here's some of the images back from those days. That's, a, I think, a modern-day image of what it did. So when it says a Tunguska-sized airburst, it's referring to this instance. This is the most modern instance that we have of something like this. A meteorite comes into the Earth's atmosphere, but it doesn't hit the Earth as a, as a firestone. It explodes before it hits the Earth. It comes, listen, at 60,000 miles per hour. They say the center of this meteorite as it falls and as it bursts is 300,000 degrees Celsius. The sun is 5,500 degrees Celsius. It's hotter than the sun, this air burst. A human being burns up at 150 degrees Celsius. This is what the scientists are saying. Instantaneously, the city is flattened with the greatest intensity hitting Sodom's temple. All the people are shattered into pieces of bone and somehow this whole explosion spreads salt over the whole Jordan Valley so that nobody could live there for 600 years. I don't know if it was, the, if it was the, the blast that just pulled up some of the, 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 the salt content in areas around the cities and this just spread it over the whole valley. But the evidence is there for 600 years. Nobody lived there. Goodness gracious. They say, the scholars conclude that the impact of this air burst, is what they call it, is larger than the atomic bomb that hit Hiroshima. And we think that nuclear warheads is powerful and something new. <laughs> We've seen nothing. We've seen nothing. The evidence proves the where, when, and how of the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah to be true. Where did it happen? The valley, the Jordan Valley east of the Jordan River. We might say, well, you know, this was just a freak accident. But how does it line up then perfectly with the story in the Bible? How does it line up that the meteorite hits specific cities? And not like what happens in Siberia. It just hits a piece of land and 500 deer die and a million trees. No accident. When did it happen? In the days of Abraham. How did it happen? Do you know what the Bible says? You can go read the King James Version. You know what it says? Brimstone. You know where that comes from? Burning stone. Does that sound like what we see in the scientific journal? Burning stone from heaven fell down and burned up the city. And the result, desolation for 600 years. Now, I have a question for the atheist, the hater, and the opposer of the Bible. I have a question. They like asking questions at university campuses. I've got a question. Now that we know the myth is a true story, will you believe? Now that we know, because that's the question that people bring to us as Christians. Now that we know the Bible isn't true, okay, well, how, now we know the Bible is true, will you believe? This is just one story. Well, most people won't. People who don't believe in God won't. People who don't believe in the Bible, they won't. Even if you bring them the information, as Stuart Chase says so well. For those who believe, no proof is necessary. To be honest with you, I don't need this article to believe it's true. 
For those who believe, no, no proof is necessary. And for those who don't believe, no proof is possible. Why? Because people don't want to believe. And here's the big problem. Why? Because if the Bible is archaeologically, geographically, and historically true, then it has to be theologically true. And that's where people have the problem. That means that if the Bible is true, I have to change my life. If I'm a sodomite and I'm practicing sodomy, then this story is a problem for me. I don't want to believe it. If the story is real, the city was real, the people were real, the people were blasted to pieces, and then God is real. And then the question is raised, why would he do such a thing? Why would God send a ball of fire and stone to a specific city that's, that's hotter than the sun and blast people into pieces, burn down the place, and leave it desolate for 600 years? Why? And here, ladies and gentlemen, is where the rubber meets the road. I'm not doing this lesson today just to prove to us that the Bible is true. I'm trying to raise the idea that we've got to look carefully at God's actions towards human beings. To see what His righteous decree is so we can respect it and honor it and stand out as different in a society where things are being normalized that God abhors. The story of Sodom is an example for us, a reminder of who God is and what He can do and what He will do. The sin of Sodom, listen carefully, wasn't just homosexuality. Because that's the one thing that we always point out. Well, it was just Sodomy, it's just, they were just homosexual people. And so God hates homosexual people. And it's far deeper than that. Homosexuality was simply the peak of all her sin. It was the peak of all his sin. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. The Israelites knew this was a real story. This really happened. They knew the land was desolate. They knew that for 600 years, nobody lived there. And the prophet says, this is why. Look at their attitude. Look at their hearts. It was an, an expression. It was the expression of the inner depravity of the people in that city. Homosexuality. That city had many sins. The sins were pride and apathy, complacency, idleness, and unconcern for the underprivileged. And verse 50 adds what? The last verse over there says, they did detestable things. Now, that's the part that we always hold on to. And maybe God wants us to hold on to that. Because that's the key thing we see in the story. All the men of the city come to the house and they want to have sex with these angels. It's the same word that we um, read about in Leviticus. The same word there is used for detestable. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. You can't say this. You'll never see this on TV in America. It's not detestable, it's love. We need to celebrate love between men. The text says it's detestable. Jude 1 verse 7, let's go to the New Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Same concept. 
So again, while homosexuality was not the only sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, it does appear to be the primary reason for the destruction of those cities. When they reach that level, it's like God sees, okay, you're prideful and you're arrogant, you don't care about the poor, those all kinds of sins. But as you're climbing this ladder of sin, go study Romans chapter 1, you keep on giving yourself over to depravity until you reach the point where you exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And when you reach that point, I'm going to take you out. Because you've reached the upper level now of total depravity. This is serious for us. The normalization and celebration of homosexuality in a society is a symptom of a depraved and godless society that invites the wrath of God. And we are there. Right now, we are there. Please take this as it is. Because even talking about this, I'm slightly nervous. Because I understand what the mindset is out there. And please understand this. I have many people in my life. I've met many people in my life. I seem to attract homosexual men who talk to me. They want to talk to me about their struggles. I love them. I have been involved in their lives. But that does not mitigate God's feelings over this sin. It's contrary to his creative order. And it puts the average Christian in a very difficult spot. Are we going to bend and try to fall in line with the popular propaganda? And try to fall in line with the teachings of Disney? Or we're going to stick by the principles. I can guarantee you now that when Sodom started as a city, it probably didn't start as with homosexuality. And not everybody in that city agreed with it and went along with it. But as time progressed, it became the popular and the normal thing. It became normalized and it became celebrated until everybody said, okay, well, it's fine. This is our biggest struggle as Christians. Is that slowly but surely, we become convinced by the world. That what the word says isn't true. And that we have to be careful of. Russia is afraid that America will nuke, nuke them. You guys understand why I say nuke, right? Nuclear warhead, right? America is afraid Putin will lose his mind and nuke us. We think that Russia and Iran and North Korea with their nuclear warheads are to be feared. Ladies and gentlemen, long before nuclear warheads existed, God decimated cities for sin with nuclear warheads. <laughs> I wish I could say this to the president of this country and to the political leaders. We should spend less time worrying about what those countries can do with their nuclear warheads and start realizing that we are slowly but surely reaching a point where God will nuke us. And when God nukes you, <laughs> can you imagine for 600 years, God doesn't just take out and destroy. He decimates you into pieces and then he pours salt all over so that you will never plant a tree again. Not just one generation. For 600 years, there will be nothing. That's what God does. 
We should all be careful. To be honest, honest, it seems like Russia is a little bit safer from God than America is. In regard to this topic, I saw that last year Putin signed a bill that bans LGBTQ propaganda, making it illegal for anyone to promote same-sex relationships or suggest that non-heterosexual orientations are normal. It's only in the West where we look at these statements and think Putin is crazy. Let me ask the question, who is crazy? Based on the text, who is crazy? We've got to be very careful that the normalization in society filters into our hearts and minds. And we miss who God is. All right. Let me speak more to the individual. There's a pervasive ideology being spread all around us to normalize and celebrate what God finds detestable. The world has always done this. But what is concerning and when we have to start being really concerned is when Christians, when readers of the Bible started normalizing and celebrating sodomy. That's what it is. Then we have a situation in which the world has started influencing Christians instead of us Christians influencing the world. The connotation of salt I find very interesting, isn't it? That God killed a civilization with salt for 600 years. Isn't that interesting? Salt seems, in this instance, fire, and then salt kills sin. The sin is so bad for me, I don't want even anybody to live in this geographical location. And Jesus says, we are what? Salt of the earth. Now, if, this, if the salt loses its saltiness, Jesus says, if we allow sodomy to just grow again and flourish, and we are fine with that, then hmm, we are not salt anymore. We have to remain salty to oppose what God detests. So don't grow numb about the things that God hates. Stick to the word of God, not the feelings of man, not the inventions or the, the desires of man. The Bible is true. The Bible is right. And it will be true. And it will be right till Jesus comes home. Science is great. It continually proves that what the scripture says is true. Stick to it. So to close off, since Genesis 19 really did happen, what do we do about it? How does this story affect us or lead us to do, uh, live our lives? Consider just two commentaries of Peter, one of Peter and one of Jesus. Let's start with Jesus. This is what Jesus says. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is in, in the house, on, on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. If you were in Sodom and you were on top of your house, you were destroyed first. You were knocked out. You didn't even know you died. Never mind going downstairs to find something. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. It's intriguing to me that Lot and his family, they knew where they had to run to. Where was it? The mountains. 
But when Jesus comes back again, where do you think people are going to try to run to? Jesus comes back now, and we hear a trumpet. What, we're going up Mark's Ridge? We see the, the meteor, meteorites coming with the hands of the angels and the trumpet blasting. And Jesus said in the air, where are we going to run to? We're going to dive in Foster Lake? This thing incinerates Foster Lake, an airburst like this. Takes out Sweeter within a second. Where do we run to? I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Don't ever forget this verse. Jesus is coming back for those who long for his return. He's coming back for those who want him to come back. Where do we run to? To him. There's no running away. It's like he's here. Let's go. Where's he? Let me see. Oh, there he is. I'm coming. This is a good moment to ask yourself, pause for a second, ask yourself a question. How do you feel about his coming? It's a deep reflection on where you are in your spiritual life and how well you know him. What does Peter say? Peter says, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example. There we go, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. If Lot was living in our time, he would be distressed by what he sees on TV. He would be distressed by pride parades. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. If you are distressed and tormented by the current movement of morality in our society, you are in a good space. You are connected to the creator. If not, you are at a bad place. If you feel this is fine and good, you're making progress. You're in a bad place. If you support the normalization and celebration of sodomy and all its attachments, you're positioning yourself directly against the creator of life. For those in torment and distress, I want you to know this. It is annoying to see what's happening in our society. Lot knew what it felt like. Don't worry. God will save you from this mess. That's what Peter is telling us. God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. A few months ago, some folks, uh, maybe a year ago, were really disturbed about how the politics surrounding homosexuality will eventually infiltrate and overtake the church. The government's going to take over the church and tell us what to teach and preach because of homosexuality. Calm down. God knows how to save the righteous. We have to fear nothing. God is in control. And as long as we walk in his will, as long as we are righteous, as Abraham asks God, hey, will you, will you save the city if there's like five good people in there, righteous people? You just make sure you're righteous. You'll be fine. 
we have to fear nothing. But, perhaps the most important is this. We have to mourn over those who will burn. This is the truth and the reality. We see Lot saved with his family, but we see 8,000 people decimated into pieces. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for those who are deeply stained in sin. They need the mercy of God. Let's stand. Then we sing the closing song.